Hi, I'm Susie McAvale. I live and work on Wurundjeri Wirriwong country in Nam, Melbourne, Australia. And working in education, I've noticed that in this COVID era, young people are not coping with life as well as they used to. But what I've come to understand is these symptoms are signs of a bigger picture and that some of us adults, we also need some help with how to deal with life changes, particularly when it comes to understanding ourselves and relating to one another and our kids. The Let's Check In podcast shares stories and strategies of real people who commit to paving positive ways forward through uncertainty. We talk about the things that you didn't learn at school, that you wish someone had prepared you for. So, let's check in. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Let's Check In podcast. Do you suffer from pain or have you at some stage through your life? The sheer physical energy and brain power it takes to put up with chronic pain really can be overwhelming especially if there isn't any real end in sight. It really is a space of extreme resilience. And that's why, for this episode of the Let's Check In podcast, I'm delighted to introduce you to Dr Hayley Leake. Hayley is a physiotherapist and research fellow at the University of South Australia and at Neuroscience Research Australia. Her work focuses on chronic pain management, pain education and digital health particularly in young people. At the age of 31, Haley has already published over 30 research articles. Putting research into action, Haley competed in the 2021 Australian Survivor, Brain vs. Brawn. She outlasted 23 castaways over 48 days in the Australian outback to take home the title of Sole Survivor. Dr. Haley Leake, welcome. It is such a treat to have you here on the Let's Check In podcast. Thanks so much. It's awesome to be here. I'm excited to have this chat. I'm so intrigued. What drew you into pain research? So I am a physiotherapist and I worked for a number of years before I went into research. And I found that there's, there is a lot of people who are living with chronic pain. The, the statistics are about one in five people. Um, and the tools we have to deal with that, they're really they're not as sharp as we'd love them to be. Um, and there's a lot of space for innovation, for discovery in new ways of helping people manage their pain. And I found that really exciting. Um, and especially when I started learning about young people with chronic pain and really the lack of weak tools we have for those people, I felt like that was a nice place for me to, um, to kind of try to step in and solve and try to help out. Young people in particular, why was that your focus? We don't really as a society fully comprehend that young people can have chronic pain. We sort of see it as this condition that is exclusive for an older person or as we age, we start to develop pain. I think that's linked to some of the myths about it, like the myth that um, pain is a reflection of an aging or fragile body. Um, and and it's not true and young people do experience pain and I think they really struggle with it because Firstly, because people don't know about it, they often feel really invalidated. Like people don't believe that they have pain. It's not something that they can have. And just trying to imagine being at that really tough and important stage of life. Like you're a teenager, you're going through high school, all these things are changing. And at the same time, 
you've got this really debilitating pain where you can't fully engage in your life. It's affecting your schooling. It's affecting your ability to connect with your friends and go to parties and go through those important milestones of adolescence. Um, And to have that doubled in with not really being believed and not really having great access to treatments, I I just felt like that that really sucks. <laughs> and I've spoken to a lot of young people and really that like, pulls at my heartstrings, their experiences. And um, so I'm, I'm really passionate about finding better ways in that space, particularly. Let's talk a little bit about the Chronic Pain Project and how this is helping people really shift from, uh, I guess, a sense of fear with pain. This project came about as a collaboration with young people. So some of our research has been trying to understand what are some key messages that would be helpful for a young person with pain to understand, but also their family and friends um, to kind of try to push away some of those myths to make that access to care easier. Um, And so as researchers, we'd come up with these really important key messages, um, but we wanted to know how we could translate them to young people. So we worked together in this co-design project and we had some young people, it's graphic designers, and we're all in one space. And we took a few months and designed these nice images that we've um, released out onto social media. Um, and we're trying to keep that up. So um, to have a space where yeah, if you're a young person, you can come and learn um, what is pain? How does that work in the body? What's the brain got to do with it? How do nerves get a bit sensitized? When does it hurt today and then not tomorrow? So all these questions young people have that we're trying to find ways to answer and, and put them in a space that they like and designs that they like. How's it going? I've noticed you've got quite a few followers on Instagram and I guess you're growing in that space, but what's the uptake been like with young people? Yeah, it's been really good. And one of the important things that they told us in the process was we want this to be a space not just for other young people with chronic pain to go to learn about pain, but we want our friends and our families and our teachers to be able to go there as well. And we want to be able to send a message to them so that they can also understand what it's like for us because it's a really big burden for them to have to learn everything and then teach everyone else. Um, yeah, I think at Creative Pain, there's a way to go. We're almost, if I think about the huge progress that's been made um, perhaps in the space of mental health, um, I think chronic pain is maybe a decade behind that and um, everyone now is upskilling themselves and like, how do I help a friend when they're going through a really tough mental health period of time and everyone's learning that at school? Um, And it would be great if we can get to a place where young people with pain also have that kind of support. That's so great because essentially what you're trying to do is connect kind of the village together. You're trying to, um, the relatability would be really difficult when someone would is suffering with a chronic illness and I guess that sense of isolation I guess it amplifies the experience and it's invisible often which is really tough then you cannot see someone else's pain uh, and we might be used to seeing that they we think of pain as with oh you've got maybe a cast after you've broken your arm or maybe you've got a wheelchair or but sometimes a lot of people experience pain and there's no visible sign to help people get connect with that empathy. Um, and and so it is like it really the understanding of the people around you, I think would be momentous to help these young people. Can you explain what happens when we feel pain? Big question. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of things. The thing that I've found really interesting over time is 
useful to separate this first, the idea of acute pain or chronic pain. And certainly I work more in the space of chronic pain. So acute pain might be something like you fall over and scratch your knee or maybe you sprain your ankle and for the first month or two it hurts. You've had an operation and it hurts after that. Um, so that's pain that's experienced for up to three months. Um, and we often tie that to so recovery from an injury or something like that, like the normal process that you'd go through. Chronic pain is when pain persists for three months or more and it just keeps going on and on and on. And it's now less linked to probably a normal recovery from an injury because we there's some time periods we expect the body heals in and something else we think is driving it now. And um, that could be a lot of different things. Um, and that can be some things that are more, I'll probably use the word psychological, certainly. Um, and there can be some things in the body where it be, the nerves become more sensitive and they stay more sensitive. So the treatments that we're focusing on when we look at chronic pain, they're different to the ones that you'd look at for acute pain, um, where you might be just resting. Um, when we've got chronic pain, we're really trying to move people back into moving more. Um, and we're looking at some psychological strategies that can help with that. Um, so it's a totally different thing. Um, and so what's happening in the body is different in those two different categories as well um, when we're looking at pain. One way that I like to think about it is our body has lots of different protective mechanisms and pain is just one of those big toolbox of things that it can use to try to protect us. You might also feel like anger or thirst or hunger and fear and these are all very protective mechanisms but pain is one that often tries to protect the body. So you'll feel, put your hand on a hot stove and you'll feel pain and so you'll move it away, which is very, very useful. Or you'll sprain your ankle and you'll feel pain, so you'll stay off it so that it heals. So it's a really, really useful tool the body has to help you. Um, and when we're looking at chronic pain, that's when that protective function has kind of not working so well anymore. It's protecting more than it needs to anymore. And it's actually stopping you from getting better. How do our thoughts and our feelings impact the pain that we feel? Sometimes our thoughts and feelings can either make us feel more safe or more unsafe um, that might affect that model of protection. So say your back hurt and you looked at a scan and the scan had all these really scary words and it said your back was really fragile and and broken and you had degeneration and disc slipping and all these things and then you knew that oh everyone in your family's had surgery for their back pain like all of these thoughts and feelings information comes into your brain can make you feel more unsafe and like your body is more unsafe and that you'll you need more protection of that body part and that can drive up your pain. So they've done studies where they have, a lot of people have come in with um, back pain and they've randomized half of them to looking at their scan results and seeing the words and the other half to not and found that, and this is people who don't have any really big, big red flags. So it's like 95% of people with back pain won't have really something serious or sinister wrong, just these people and found that when you don't look at these scans and have all this fear, 
you tend to recover better. Um, so we're learning more about the kinds of threatening messages that people can get um, and the stress and anxiety of that that can actually make recovery a lot harder. Okay, so I have a bit of a story to share here. Earlier this week, I um, I went and got a blood test. Okay, so for me, it's not a particularly like stressful situation. Um, but this particular morning, I was in a bit of a rush. It was early in the morning. I hadn't had anything to drink and hadn't, hadn't had anything to eat either. Anyway, so I got to the pathology and unbeknownst to me, the, the nurse had to take like seven vials, which is obviously quite a lot of blood. And so I'm sitting there and I decided to put your research to the test, okay? So I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, everything's okay, Suze, you're calm, you're safe, everything's okay, nothing can go wrong, you're safe. I kept telling myself this as she started to take blood. Okay, so we get like midway through and she starts to say, okay, I'm having quite a lot of trouble. I can't get the blood out. And she, I could feel her getting elevated. I could sense that she was getting stressed because she was articulating it. And I'm still trying to say to myself, you're okay, Suze, you're safe. And then she proceeded to take the, the line out and was like, I'm sorry, I can't get this out through like half a vial in the bin. And then said, at this stage, I'm feeling like quite dizzy. And she's like, okay, you need to lie in the bed. We need to go for your other arm. So I lie down, she goes to the other arm and then through the whole, the rest of the three vials, she was like talking through how she didn't think she was going to get the blood, that it'd have to come back. And I was like, oh my God, okay. Like it got to a point where telling myself that being safe just wasn't working because of what was around me as a stimulus, right? And so it got me thinking, if at the root of withstanding pain is about understanding that we're safe, then how do we convince ourselves of this fact when either our own fear steps in or other people's reactions around us influence how you know we might experience the discomfort yeah that's really stressful <laughs> sorry about that it was a lot of violence um there's a lot of things that we can try to do to help well like i'm thinking from like the researcher or the clinician's perspective um that the clinician can do to help you feel more safe in that situation um, but you only have a certain amount of control over that um, which is challenging yeah that is really hard and I think it is a bit of a constant battle for us to be thinking how do we create a space where we're not feeling scared and especially like with medical stuff it's hard when there is that uncertainty around like is this right or is there something wrong and like they're the professional they should know so I'm really interested in the clinician being the one who really is trained so i think for a long time you know physios nurse that we're not so much trained in um we're really really well trained in doing the medical stuff but i think because there hasn't been a big acknowledgement historically or at least when a lot of us went through training that the way that you make the patient feel in that space will affect the outcome of that and and can also have like impacts down the road, not just in that one interaction. We store all the memories of these things. So true. And so I think as we have better understanding of this, we improve the training around it and awareness around it so that we are encouraged to make sure that when someone walks into the space, it's a calming space and they're not, that that kind of fear isn't going to impact their experience because that will have impacts down the road on like, 
how they access healthcare and like how it feels for you and that needle phobias. Mm. It's yeah. And and I like I certainly know some more research in space where people are trying to look at that. Um, like especially with kids, like how do we how do we give them vaccines in ways that they're not going to be scared of and what do we and then there's a kind of debate around do we say to like a, a young child, um, now you've got to be really brave now and then afterwards you'll get a lolly or something. Like what does that do to a child before they walk into the vaccine? If they've been told, be really brave, they're like, I'm about to do something terrifying. Like I should be scared of what I'm going to do, but I have to be brave about it. Right. And that could make them feel even more scared about what they're going to go do. Not to mention like the feeling what you feel and kind of express what you you're feeling like I, I kind of feel like part of that comment too is about are we suppressing some of the experience or some of the feelings that might be fair and valid right yeah and you have to work through that like if you're scared it's good to communicate that you're scared and then you can kind of sort through what it is that you're scared about like what is it that is is the thing that's driving that fear totally how much do you think pain is actually about uncertainty oh that's hard to quantify I think there's definitely an element um, of uncertainty that can impact someone's pain experience, especially when we're talking about chronic pain. There is a lot of uncertainty around chronic pain. Like, why do I have it? How long am I going to have it for? If I do this activity, am I going to end up in pain again? Um, And I think that's really difficult, that kind of lack of control around it. And clinicians often are trying to find tools that can help patients or people living with pain to create a bit more certainty or control around their pain experience. But I think that's a big part of it. Like it's not knowing for sure why you have it. And there's always that little thing in the back of someone's mind that like, is this actually a sign of something really bad? And we see this a lot at the start of someone's pain experience where you've got pain that doesn't go away. There's something in your mind that says, is it like a cancer? Is it like a really scary thing that's no one's found yet? Um, and I should keep going from doctor to doctor, getting as many scans and blood tests as I can to find out what it is. And we see that, and that's really, that's really challenging because it's, it's a natural kind of feeling to have about pain. Um, and we're really trying to find this balance because sometimes all those scans and all that investigating adds fear doesn't resolve in finding some big scary thing and actually delays getting treatments that can be helpful because you're so busy spending months waiting for specialists to get to these appointments and 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 not not treating pain in a way that we know we can it early and starting with that long journey of of trying to find the right tools that work for you yeah so i think it's a big part of uncertainty I'm assuming like things like treatment plans, this is why they're so important, right? They give people a level of control and a bit of a pathway forward. Yeah, and I think what's important is that they give um, the person with pain control. Like it's not the clinician that's going to have some magical hand that's going to figure out how to do the massage in the right way that's going to fix someone. Um, It is really giving the control to the person with pain and they learn to do kind of mini experiments with themselves. What if I went for like a walk around the block? Like, I don't want to do it. It feels like I shouldn't do it. I'm in pain. My my instincts are telling me don't do it because it hurts. But if I did it, then could I then, would I be okay? Like what would tomorrow be like? Am I going to be in bed all day or am I going to be okay? And if I'm okay, 
could I just do a little bit more the next day and maybe build it up a bit more? Um, but no one's going to have the exact answer because everyone's so different. But it's that kind of feeling confident enough to have those mini experiments in yourself, even though there's uncertainty there, even though sometimes it might take three steps forward, one step back to get to a place where, yeah, there is more control. I feel like this is a really nice segue to a little bit of your survivor experience. So if we go to the last round of the 2021 Australian Survivor, well, you're one of three. You were forced to stand on these wooden pegs while simultaneously holding on to wooden pegs above your head. Now, the final three of you, you waited hours for like your your arch rivals to drop. Hayley, you won after five and a half hours. Like to, it's just mind-blowing that you were able to do that how did your research of pain help you become the last standing survivor yeah i think the pain stuff was useful and it's interesting to think about we were talking earlier about safety cues in your environment so you know if someone around you is trying to say things that help you feel safe or unsafe everything around you made you feel unsafe in this environment so the host who kept saying, um, oh, how painful is it? Oh, does it? And your, your fellow castmate saying, oh, it feels like my arm's getting ripped out of its socket. Like, I feel like I have a thousand needles running through my feet. Like, they, there was a lot of things that felt really unsafe to your ears. Then when you looked around, you had animal carcasses everywhere. Oh, my gosh. There was red paint on the pegs that we were standing on to emulate blood. Like there was a lot of visuals that were there to make you feel really unsafe. Even the way that cage lowered down um, every, I don't know, half an hour, I didn't know time out there, but um, it had this creaking noise. It was all rusty looking. So I had to trust that it was not actually rusted and that was the props department, but it certainly gave you the visual of like, this isn't even being held together well and could collapse at any moment, um, which is very scary. And so all of those cues coming in are designed so that I don't feel safe. And from what I know about pain, as the hours progressed, like that wasn't going to help me feel like it was okay to stay in it. And that was certainly going to be something that could drive my pain or my fear and anxiety that could influence my pain up more. So what I tried to do was block all of that stuff out. So anytime the host was trying to ask me about how does it feel, I was just like, it feels fine. Like it feels good. I, although I know it did feel painful, I didn't want to give my brain more stories of like a thousand needles in my feet. I was trying to block that stuff out. I just told myself, cause I hadn't, I'm, I'm studied the body before. So I kind of worked through the body and I told myself, okay, Let's imagine you stand for 10 hours. So what's going to happen? Let's work through the body systems. You got skin. What will happen to your skin? All right. You might get a blister, but that's okay. You're not, you could be fine. You'll heal like in a few days. What would happen to your muscles? I don't think anything's going to happen to my muscles. If I just stand still or like wiggle my feet a little, maybe I'll cramp, but that's not an issue. What would happen to my nerves? My nerves are fine. What's going to happen to my bones? They're not going to break. Like, so although I might feel pain, that pain is not there to tell me that I have a big injury or um, something really bad will happen. If I just keep wiggling my feet a little, which I could do, 
maybe I'd get a blister. Like that would be it. I don't think there's any big fearful long injury that will come from doing this, but it it will hurt. Um, So it kind of reduced how stressful or painful that was because I could separate that pain from damage to my body. Um, And I felt really confident about that. Um, So I thought that was really helpful for me. And then I tried to spend most of my time thinking about positive things and at that stage of being 47 days into eating a handful of rice every day, the most positive thing I could think about was this giant basket, which I was walking through the supermarket and I was just filling it up with all my favorite foods <laughs> and just like picturing this giant basket of food. And that felt really like safe and comforting for me. And also because I knew with certainty that that was coming, like in a few days, like regardless of the outcome, I could have that. I tried to really focus on safe cues for me and block out anything that was dangerous or might drive my pain up higher. What is it about food that gets us through big ordeals? I remember going overseas and doing a really big two-day hike and pretty, you know, interesting terrain and conditions. And I remember at the end saying to my partner, like, when we get back that charcuterie board, I was just like explaining what was going to be on it. I was visualizing that and the red wine. Like (laughs) it's what was getting me through to the end, honestly. So I feel like it totally resonates. Food is like my big driver. I'm like constantly like two hours of work and then I can have a snack. (laughs) You're pregnant and you're, were you third trimester? Is that correct? Yeah. How are you going with the uncertainty of being pregnant? It's so new, isn't it? I feel a little bit sorry for my body because I've really, in the last three years, like I went on Survivor twice, so I've put it through that extreme twice and now I'm putting it through the opposite extreme. Yes. But it's doing a very good job and I'm very grateful for this body of mine. I am feeling pretty good. Yeah, I've had a pretty good run so far and starting to feel some of those discomforts of that third trimester. Um just go on with it. <laughs> there is an end. It's always good to know. And I think that's, yeah, I think I still, it's about that certainty you get, right? Like I am certain this will end because it has to end. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the discomfort starts coming in, you know, some like getting a bit of back pain and you get a bit of reflux and a few things that aren't very nice, but I feel confident that there will be an end to that. Um, so I feel kind of lucky about that and similarly in like survival although that was really challenging and you're starving and you're doing painful challenges they're gonna end and you know that um I think the thing that is hard is when people have to go through really painful or challenging things and they don't know if it's gonna end or when it's gonna end um that's really hard but what I'm in right now will end (laughs) yeah totally I know you prepared quite a lot like mentally and physically for Survivor and the challenge of Survivor, but what were the lessons that you didn't see coming, you know, that you didn't prepare for? I think the honest answer, I'm trying to find two ways to answer that. The first thing that springs to mind is actually experiencing being on TV, um, which is something that I, and that's after the game has actually finished and then it airs and the world sees it. Um, I... I didn't think I'd really thought about that. I, I'm a big fan of the game Survivor, and so I really thought a lot about playing and how I would navigate through it. 
but I hadn't thought about the, the feelings and the process of it all airing, the anxieties, the anticipation of waiting, of knowing that there's three days for each episode um, and they film 24 hours a day and then they're going to air like, I don't know, half an hour, an hour of that. And what are they going to air? What did you say? And um, how will people think about it? I found that that actually the most challenging experience of the whole thing um, over and above the actual playing of the game. <laughs> I think that's different for everyone. Like some people go into a game like that because they're really interested in the part where they're on TV and that's what they're like really excited about. Um, and I just hadn't really processed what that would be like. Um, yeah, and so I found a lot of that a bit challenging. Um, and the best ways to get through that for me was just the supports that we had in the other players, the knowing that they're all feeling the same thing and having that village where you can go to them and share those anxieties and count down until the evening that it's on and just be able to work through what that feels like, the fear of it, and then encourage everyone afterwards once it was on. So I really didn't expect that because you don't really think about it like a TV show, but it is. Um, I guess I didn't. I thought of a Dyson fan. And becoming a bit of a... People knowing your name. That was new, but I've had a really nice experience with all that. But there's also, you know, social media is a challenging place and, you know, everyone will get messages that are unkind and some of your very close friends will get a lot. And that was horrible. It sucks to watch people go through that um, where they're getting really poorly treated when they've just gone on TV to do something. And I think that reflects that people see, they watch a show like that and they kind of see you as a character, not as a human being, which is kind of, that's, I kind of understand how that fact, especially when they're young. That was honestly the most challenging part of the experience, if I think about it as a whole experience. And being in the game, I'm trying to think what was the most challenging about that. <laughs> Starving is horrible and you can't prepare for it. Like it just is horrible. And the way that it affects your mood and your ability to think. It's a, it's a funny game because you really don't have a lot of control in the game. It's always comes down to the production stuff that I find interesting because you can then walk certain an area within where you're meant to be camped. Um, you can't explore as far as you want. Um, yeah, there's lots of limits to what you can do. Now, you and I, we both grew up in Mildura in the land of, you know, citrus and grapes. <laughs> we know a thing or two about, you know, walking home from school or the bus in harsh 40 degree conditions. But what part of your upbringing prepared you maybe the most for the challenge of Survivor? I think so much of my upbringing prepared me for Survivor. A few things like, yeah, one is just the way that you live actively and outdoors when you grow up in a country town like Mildura. Um, you're just so used to it. Like, like you're, when your um, holidays are just camping and um, you go down the bush and you're just so used to being outside and it's not, that part's not challenging. Like that's actually quite fun and exciting. And like, my brother who, you know, he got really into survival skills at a certain part of his life. And he would go down the end of our street and build these like, I don't know what you call them, little huts, I guess, um, and bow and arrow, and he'd go camp out there for the night. And, um, yeah, just all of that stuff just made, meant that I didn't have to focus on what am I feeling uncomfortable sleeping on the ground and being really hot and bothered because 
like that's kind of just a part of the way you've grown up. So you're not really like that's not the discomfort of that is it distracting you from being able to also play the game. I think that was helpful. And the other thing which I think was helpful is that I had a very strict mother <laughs> growing up. Um, she was very strict. And so she's loved us a lot and, and still does. But um, lots of rules, lots of you must do all of this and you can't do any of that. And um, I, I learned how to be really sneaky <laughs> so that I could still go to parties and um, pretend I was somewhere else and um, not have to suffer the wrath of a strict mum. And so I think learning how to navigate that meant that I just grew up being a bit sneaky. <laughs> My wife, they, she tells me I owe her half the money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I was just about to say, I wonder if she asked for dips. <laughs> yeah, she did. Like, Han, I told you that. Resilience, hey? Childhood experiences, they certainly shape us. Oh, yeah. So, Hayley, tell us what you're most uncertain about at the moment and I guess how you're best supporting yourself. I've always found career to be quite uncertain. Really? Yeah, yeah. That intrigues me. You don't seem like that. Yeah, I think that I've come to terms of I'm someone who will always think, oh, what if I was doing that? Or what if I could try that instead? Um, like I really enjoy what I do. Um, and I think maybe it also reflects that. So I'm in the early years of being a researcher after my PhD is finished. And there's a lot of uncertainty in that stage of your career. Um, there's like very short contracts and um, a lot of competition, uh, a lot of people. And then this is the kind of, it's a kind of, kind of funnels down. I think people drop out because it's, it's quite a challenging career. Um, and yeah, there's some uncertainty with that that I'm dealing with right now. Um, and, and my strategy for dealing with that, the actual phrase I've been using for myself lately is just getting comfortable with uncertainty. So it's not so much, and I'm trying to do that a bit more in lots of aspects of my life. It's not so much I'm trying to find ways to control it, but more that I'm trying to be okay with uncertainty and just know that should it be like right now some uncertainty around certain parts of the career or should it be in the future uncertainty about like how to raise a child or, or whatever. I don't. I'd like to have a feeling of it's okay to not know and it's okay that, you know, the future is unknown, but I just have to do the best today and in this moment right now with the information I have, that's all I can do and that's what I'm going to do. So that in the future when I look back and say, oh, I could have made a different decision at that point, there's no blame on myself. There's no guilt because I made the best decision in that moment with the information I had at the time. And that's what I did. And, and I just have to trust myself that I'm doing that. Um, because I just think we're going to have to always deal with uncertainty. Like, I don't think it's going to go away. <laughs> I don't think we can control it. No, totally agree. I think it's maybe the only certainty in life that we do have is this level of uncertainty that we constantly have to move with. Yeah. I find it really helpful to talk to people about it. I'm someone who really needs to express things out loud and share them. And um, I find it really helpful to find people who have had shared experiences of the thing I'm going through that I'm uncertain about and uh, just talking to them about it. Because often hearing that they have had that 
experience or someone who's maybe further along in like the career of raising kids or something who has also can reflect back and say, I, I also didn't really know what I was doing at that time. You're like, oh, that's good to know. I guess it's kind of going back to what we we're talking before about with chronic pain, you know, that sense of not feeling isolated and knowing that someone else has gone through it and that you kind of seen and understood and that, yeah, in, in reality, we're all trying to just navigate our way and all we can do is make decisions with what information we have at the time. And, and as you say, like have that sense of trust, um, trust and kind of not in a religious way, but faith that it's going to be okay, you know, like regardless, we're going to learn from it and we're going to be safe and it's going to be okay. Yeah, just and going easy on yourself and just trusting that you're doing the best you can. Like and it's, and it's okay if you're going to have, I don't know if you need to have a day of like, I'm checking out today and I'm on the couch and it's, and it's Netflix. Like that's sometimes the thing you need to do to, to, to get through the uncertainty is like sometimes you need to deal with it and chart something forwards and sometimes you need to not think about it and just distract and so that you have the energy to deal with it. Um, I'm a really big um, diary person. Like I have like lots and lots and lots of different diaries that are all like password protected and both for years and um for me when I have this like really acute feeling of like uncertainty and like the stress that comes with that um I've I find it really helpful to just unload that all onto um a page and then I can see it and all the things that I'm feeling about and then I can look at it often I can either put it in some sort of order or or tackle one thing um or I can realize like actually all of this stuff feels big, but once I look at it, it's not that big, like it's fine. Like I'm just gonna go do that one thing. And that's that's me having, that's I think the way I try to create some control around it is like just to be fully aware of what it is that I'm feeling uncertain or anxious about and to try to allow myself to be able to tackle it in some sort of way or, or just to get it out of my head so that it's somewhere and my, my, my diary can hold it and I don't have to hold it anymore. Yeah, that's so true. A really good friend of mine said the other day to me, you know, it's so interesting how we can have, like you say, this really acute feeling that comes over us. It's really quite overwhelming. And then we have to, we find our ways of kind of navigating through it might be journaling or whatever. And then you can sleep on it. And a couple of days later, you'd be like, look at the same piece of paper and like, what, what, where was I at then? You know, like, <laughs> and not that it wasn't valid, but maybe it's that you've gone through that process of kind of understanding and digesting it and expressing, uh, I think is so useful to getting out the other side and making sense of it. It is it's a very big and complex world. Like, I don't know how I'm meant to move through it. Like, I don't know what, what even is certainty. Like, how do you... How are you meant to feel certain about like, yes, this is what I'm going to do today and tomorrow and this is the path and this is all the things and I'm sure that they're right. Like right for what? Like right for right, right for you today, but you today is not you next week or you next month. Like we change. So we've got to be uncertain. Like we're not, we don't know what we're doing. We're just doing the best we can. So, so true. Hayley, this conversation has been so super interesting. Thank you so much. 
Now, people can find your work on Instagram at Chronic Pain Project or Hayley Leak on Instagram or Twitter. That's right. Thank you so much, Dr. Hayley Leak. Thank you for your time on the Check In podcast. Thanks for checking in with me today. I'm your host, Susie McAvale. I live and work on Wurundjeri, Wurrawong country in Nam, Melbourne, Australia. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and leave a review. If you'd like to find out more about the Let's Check In podcast, head to the website letscheckinpodcast.com where there's loads of information in the show notes. You can also follow us at Let's Check In Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn and TikTok. This podcast is not a licensed mental health service and it is not a substitute for professional mental health advice. If something has come up for you in this episode, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. This podcast has been made with the help of Pod and Pen Productions. 